And I'm one not of- the country music star that you want, <laughs> but I'm the country music star you deserve. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He's a legend, an outlaw, an entertainer, and the epitome of what it is to be Texan. Today we discuss Willie Nelson, the modern years. But first, what's your favorite Texas roadside quick stop? Well, I'm going to go with Bucky's. I, I didn't know Bucky's existed for most of my life, but in the past few years it's become a staple of that drive from Dallas to uh, Texas City. Ah, you said staple! <laughs> if you're looking for a convenience store the size of a Walmart, that's the place to go. It's nice. My favorite is in Centerville, and it's called Woody's, and there's two of them. They're across the highway from each other, one on the east side, one on the west side. The smokehouse, and they have smoked sausages and jerky and pecan pralines, some in the shape of Texas, and fried pies, <laughs> and brisket, and it's a good place to stop. You can go there. Nice bathrooms, too. Yeah. Now I, you can go there coming and going. Yeah, you can now go there coming the, and going. Now, here's the problem with those two answers, which are decent answers. There's nothing quick about a trip to the Bucky's. Sure there is. There's nothing quick about a stop at Woody's. But, you know, there's always Dairy Queen, the Texas stop sign, and I think you should drive <laughs> right past that stop sign and stop at a convenient Whataburger. You should do a California stop at the Dairy Queen That's exactly to get right. to the Whataburger. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, here's our story so far. We've got a poor farm boy from a tiny Texas town, abandoned by his parents and raised by his grandparents. After stints in the Air Force and college, he worked nearly every job imaginable, kicking around the country in and out of his own family's life. Finally, he achieved success as a songwriter in Nashville, but languished there as a solo artist because he didn't fit the rhinestone mold of the country world at the time. He left it all behind to move to Austin, Texas, and became the vanguard of what is now known as outlaw country music. Finally, in the late 80s, Willie was riding high on the success of numerous hit albums, tours, and social activism. 1990 would unfortunately be his most famously rough year as his world came crashing down on him. Since the mid-1970s, Willie had been advised by a string of poor managers and accountants. In the 70s, he'd had a manager who'd increased Willie's earnings and revenue potential, but he also allegedly had taken more than his fair piece of the pie and had failed to ensure that Willie's taxes were paid, racking up a $2 million bill from the IRS from 1975 to 1979. Those were some of Willie's most successful years. After firing that manager, Willie and his new manager met with internationally famous accounting firm Price Waterhouse to help him get out of the hole. It would be his largest mistake he ever made. Willie told People Magazine in an interview in 1991 his philosophy on bankers and accountants from growing up in the cotton country. At least in those days, the farmer had a banker he could shake hands with and make a deal with. And if the farmer's word was good, well then the banker's word would be good. Those times have changed now. You can't trust the bankers anymore, or the accountants. You can't trust anybody anymore. Well, then he paused and said, I take that back. You can trust the farmers. They're still up front. The full-fledged investigation into Willie's finances began in 1984 as the IRS examined his returns all the way back to 1972. The records from 1975 through 1978 had been destroyed, and his previous management had left things in shambles. Often, dealings were done with cash. Longtime roadie Tim O'Connor said in the 70s, We collected the box office with a pistol and carried the dollars in a briefcase. 
By the late 70s, big shows like the yearly 4th of July picnics and hit records had attracted the IRS's attention. Pricewaterhouse accountants suggested to Willie a controversial tax shelter to put his money into government securities as a way to defer taxable income. In the end, after several lawsuits, the IRS disallowed this deduction, not just for Willie, but for many people, including Jackson Brown, Kenny Loggins, Helen Reddy, and Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, and they prosecuted a number of people. Willie himself was hit with a $32 million tax bill. Wow, and this is $1980. Right. This included what he had owed plus fines and interest. In 1988, the IRS and Willie's attorneys managed to strike a deal, pay $2 million up front as a sign of good faith, and then he could work out a plan to pay an additional $14 million in fees and fines. They later negotiated this down to just $6 million. But there was a problem. According to his daughter Lana, who mostly handled the finances by this point, Willie didn't have $6 million. She told Texas Monthly in 1991, he didn't have a million dollars. Heck, he probably didn't have $30,000. So why did the IRS think that he was so rich? And why was Willie so poor? The IRS had seen Willie's prolific touring schedule and the turnout at all of his shows. Well, if there are 70,000 people at a show, where are all these gate revenues going? Well, the numbers could be misleading. The quirky nature of the picnics and festivals that had paid admissions were often just suggestions rather than a hard and fast rule. More importantly, though, Willie had always just been generous with his money to those who surrounded him. Calling his band The Family was not just a name. He was building a true family. He'd bought people houses and famously gave money to anyone who asked. He repaid small loans with extravagant gifts, like the $500 loan from country crooner Farron Young that he'd repaid with a $40,000 bull, or the nightclub he bought music producer Larry Butler to pay back a $50 loan. He was giving extravagant gifts such as cars, clothes, and Rolex watches, which he would just give to friends. In his mind, Willie had multiple families, children, and employees who depended on him to be paid. Now, he once told O'Connor, There's three things I never want you to be. Cold, wet, and hungry. Family equaled loyalty, and Willie was always going to be loyal in any way that he could. The money should have been rolling in, but it just wasn't. Most of the money he made was from concerts, which went right out the door. Adding on to that, he played dozens of free shows a year to benefit one cause or another. Endorsements and movie deals were the same way. He'd give his money to people, and Lana says that if she told him he was being taken advantage of, he'd give them more money just to prove her wrong. He sold the rights to his catalog of music, so all the royalties were gone. In the Nashville days, he had been under contract, or he just sold songs to people he liked. His more recent and popular output was tied up in his own publishing company. In mid-1990, to try to pay down some of the IRS fees, he sold his music publishing company to Fuji Pacific for $2.27 million. However, in the end, part of the money went to the IRS for another tax claim. A big chunk of it paid off some loans he'd taken out to invest in the security scam, and another chunk went to his partner, drummer Paul English. In the end, Willie somehow managed to pay $35,000 to sell off his entire music catalog. Willie had lots of land. It was really the only thing he'd splurged on with his money. He had property throughout Texas and Hawaii and elsewhere. The late 80s recession had driven down his property values, uh, causing all of his holdings to be worth a lot less. What's more, his Perdinalis Ranch, which included a golf course and the set to his movie The Red-Headed Stranger, was home to most of his family, friends, and associates, all of whom lived there rent-free. Regardless of their contribution to the enterprise as a whole, they were welcome. 
It was valued at a million dollars, but most of his income went to the upkeep and maintenance of the property and supporting its inhabitants. From Willie's perspective, his high political profile, particularly in terms of marijuana, made him a political target. Just Say No was a major campaign in the U.S. at this time, and a major star who advocated the legalization of pot was obviously going to be a lightning rod for attention. Other people connected with Willie speculated that the farm aid program made him political enemies by shining a light on the plight of farmers while Congress voted to reduce farm subsidies. Willie filed a $45 million lawsuit against Price Waterhouse over the illegal deductions and requested that the IRS defer prosecution until the case was settled. However, as 1990 came to an end, the IRS wanted to be paid. In a scene straight out of a movie, in November of 1990, the IRS froze and seized all of his assets. Over 20 properties, including his Perdinalis recording studio, golf course, complete movie set, and several houses were seized. They also seized his master tapes for all of his recordings. The only things that they didn't get were his tour bus, the Honeysuckle Rose, and his guitar. Now let's talk about that guitar. Willie's most prized possession in the world is his famous guitar trigger, a worn-out, beat-up, well-loved Martin N20 classical guitar that he'd bought in 1969, Trigger was, and remains, his constant companion. Willie says, quote, As long as I got my guitar, I'll be fine. But he often said, When Trigger goes, I'll quit. He feared that the IRS might seize an auction of the guitar, as they'd done before for other musicians who were in tax trouble. To prevent that, he had his daughter Lana smuggle it out of the property and keep it safe for him to bring him at gigs as required. But in true Texas fashion, when the government attempted to auction off his properties, no one would buy them. In particular, a group of farmers who Willie had supported raised funds to buy back some of the singer's assets. Several of his famous friends bought his possessions and properties at low-ball prices and promised to hold them for Willie and sometimes gave or leased them back to him until he got back on his feet. Legendary University of Texas football coach Daryl Royal bought the Perdinalis Ranch for about $100,000 and told Willie to pay him back when he could. The auctions only reduced Willie's debt by about $2 million. In order to get out of the situation, Willie made an extraordinary deal with the IRS in 1991. He got them to agree to let him back into his studio and release his master tapes. Willie would produce a special CD called The IRS Tapes, Who Will Buy My Memories? A percentage of the sale went to the IRS, and another portion went to pay for his lawsuit against Price Waterhouse. These were a collection of recordings of just Willie and his guitar playing some of his classic songs. In a 1991 article in the New York Times, Willie said that he was not letting the tax bill take over his life. There are more serious problems in life than financial ones, and I've had a lot of those. I've been broke before, and will be again. Heartbroke? That's serious. Lose a few bucks? That's not. The album ended up being one of his best sellers, selling a million and a half copies and reducing his debt by another three and a half million dollars over two years. While this high drama was playing out on television, a darker storm was brewing. Billy was his son from his first marriage. He had struggled with his finances and alcohol over the years, but Willie, being Willie, always bailed him out. With the IRS problems, though, Willie could no longer assist Billy in his troubles. And tragically, depression over money, substance abuse, and other losses in his personal life overwhelmed Billy, and he committed suicide on Christmas Day, 1991. He hung himself at a family cabin in Richtop, Tennessee, which is the same property where Willie's house had burned down years before. The news was devastating. Longtime friend and football coach Daryl Royal was one of the first to rush to Willie's side. When Coach Royal had lost his two adult children, 
Years before, Willie had been there and comforted his friend with the song The Healing Hands of Time. In 1991, as he'd been there to save Willie's home the year before, Coach Royal was there for his friend. Royal was just one of Willie's family and friends who rallied around him. The only way Willie could deal with his grief was to get back on stage. Willie later said he thought of going to Hawaii just to get away, but what good would that do anybody? I should get to working again. There's nothing I can do about what happened. In the meantime, as he tried to stop the financial bleeding, his old friend and Whataburger spokesman Mel Tillis booked Willie for several months of gigs in Branson, Missouri. At this time, the fledgling vacation spot in the Ozarks was just beginning to get popular. Tillis tried to convince Willie to buy and open a theater and to give up the touring lifestyle. Almost immediately, Willie knew it was a mistake. He was absolutely miserable with the sedentary lifestyle of playing to small crowds of tourists who cared little for the music or the experience. Branson taught him the lesson that he needed to be in motion. Seeing the same people in the same place day after day, it was a self-imposed prison sentence where I decided I wanted to book myself for six months, Willie said. After six months, I couldn't wait to get out. And so, he loaded up the honeysuckle rose and got on the road again. He was almost constantly on tour, and when he wasn't touring, he was tirelessly recording. He recorded 11 albums between 1992 and 1999, and 16 albums since 2000, ranging from traditional country to jazz, to the blues, to reggae, and children's music. He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1993, and the Kennedy Center Honors in 1998. In 1993, he settled his lawsuit with Pricewaterhouse. Now, the amount of this settlement remains undisclosed, but he made enough to pay off his remaining $9 million that he owed to the IRS, buy back all of his possessions and properties that his friends had held for him, and never had any trouble with the IRS again. Now, since then, life has been much the same for Willie. Endorsement deals have come and gone for him, as have movie roles and a well-publicized but currently unsuccessful biodiesel venture. In 1991, he married for the fourth and last time to makeup artist Annie D'Angelo. They have two sons, Lucas and Jacob, both of whom are musicians and artists. All told, Willie has seven living children and several grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Willie has remained politically active over the years, continuing to support farmers' rights, the legalization of marijuana, environmental conservation, and various other libertarian causes. Willie is one of the oldest living members of the Grand Old Opry and the Country Music Hall of Fame, and is quite possibly the most revered and respected performer and songwriter in music today. He's received countless Lifetime Achievement Awards and honors for his contributions to the arts and social causes. He and the family still perform dozens of concerts throughout the year, and they still drive down the road in that old tour bus, which now runs on Bio Willie Biodiesel. He recently celebrated his 81st birthday by obtaining his fifth-degree black belt in the Korean martial art Gongwon Yusul after 20 years of study. Now, by the time this show airs, his 68th studio album, Band of Brothers, will have dropped, and he shows no signs at all of slowing down. The words of one of his most famous songs still rings true for Willie Nelson's life. Phases and stages, circles and cycles, scenes that we've all seen before. Let me tell you some more. No, I mean, what do you, what do you say about Willie Nelson? He's, I mean, he's, he's as Texan as they come. I mean, you know, we just, we just know Willie Nelson, but oh, it took 30 years for him to build his sort of cachet as this amazing songwriter and then this amazing yeah, performer I mean, he, and an actor. I mean, he's, he's always been incredibly talented, but he was not an instant overnight success. You know, it, it took him time to build that up and for people to realize what was right under their nose that whole time. 
this story, the second half of the modern Willie Nelson, the thing everybody knows of, if you say Willie Nelson, they think tax problems. But or pot. Or pot. Or pot now. But <laughs> but for a long time, Willie's, yeah. it was the butt of a lot of SNL yeah. jokes. It was the yeah. it was a punchline for a lot of comedians. But it was it was really when we, you know, I just thought it was a one-dimensional thing. And as I started reading the in the details of the story, it was like, oh, man, like, Price Waterhouse, like a huge yeah. accounting firm, not only torpedoed his finances, but dozens of other people's finances. Hundreds. Hundreds of hundreds them. Hundreds of other people's yeah. finances. And what I think, I mean, to help illustrate things even better, you know, there's a lot of musicians and artists that have gotten in trouble with the IRS uh-huh. and had tax problems. And I can't think of any that have come out of it as successfully as Willie. I mean, in like, you know, the quote that we mentioned he just never let it get him down. He's like, you know what? These are problems, but it's nothing I can't deal with. It's not and heartbreak. It's not heartbreak. It's yeah. not It's not personal injury emotionally. You know, it's just money. Well, and we talked about this, you know, offline. Thinking back, and I've talked to some other people who remember that time as well. There was never any, you know, Mike said there's some, he was the butt of some jokes and stuff, but there was never any rancor or, nobody turned on Willie over this deal. Nobody said, I don't like Willie because he doesn't pay his taxes. There was never any negative feeling towards him. There was so much sympathy. Right. I was going to say, it was always always the opposite. Why is the IRS picking on poor old Willie? Picking on poor old Willie going after this And it speaks to his character. It took a long time for people to realize what was under their noses. But once they did, this person is genuine. That's what strikes me about Willie Nelson. He genuinely cares about the things that he does. And and just the information, what you find out about his, his, his... his generosity to those who he cares about. You can feel that from him and you can see he's not a rock star. Well, I said this last yeah. week and, and I'll say it again. I really recommend like it's worth reading any of Willie's books. His value is not measured in money unless you're the IRS. Yeah. <laughs> but right. if you're a normal person, you know, the experiences of his life are are incredible. And there's so many fun stories of his youth, just in, incredible things. I mean, incredible depths of poverty Incredible levels of riches. There was, you know, he talked about before, right before all the IRS stuff, when they had the the movie set. And then he's like, you know, we just break out the horses and we'd get out the guns and we'd go ride through the, we'd just go ride through the the movie set and yeah. we'd just play cowboys. You know, that's just <laughs> what we, that's what you might do on a Friday night if you're hanging out. We had nothing to do with Willie Nelson, but so there's all of these highs of the of the lifestyle, but but there's these depths of like sorrows that he goes through as well, and the suffering. You know, yes, he had this great attitude to it, but what a horrible thing to go through to just put your trust in people. And he was constantly let down by people, but he never let that stop him from putting trust in people. He rewarded loyalty, and but he 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 always expected the best of you until you proved him wrong, and then then you better watch out. Well, and then he'd (laughs) give you more money. I mean, you know, that was the thing too. It's like it seemed like he was always ready to give you a second or third chance just because he wanted to believe in. The goodness of people. Just don't I, mess with his guitar. No, the guitar. He, he punched is, Jerry Jeff Jerry Jeff Walker when Jerry Jeff Doc, Walker was drunk, messing around with his guitar, and he went up to him and punched him and took Trigger away from him. Well, that's a funny story. But another great story was, is, you know, there's a group of farmers that got yeah. together when the IRS was going to auction off all this stuff. This group of farmers got together, and they didn't have a lot, but they pulled their money into a small trust to buy back some of Willie's items for all the work he did for them to yeah. try to save their farms. And he paid them back with interest. Yeah, like Willie's, a, he's, he's not someone... He, would, he didn't want to take, 
He didn't want it. That's the thing about Willie. He never wanted to take from anybody. He always wanted to give. And I think that's what is so endearing about it. That's what That's what we connect with. He's eccentric. He's odd. He comes from nothing, and he's built an empire, and he's lost it. And then he built another empire, and he lost it. And he's built, you know, he's built this group around him, and he's built so much success, and he just gives away everything. And despite however people may feel one way or the other about politics or his lifestyle or whatever it is, we all claim him as being undeniably Texan, and in some way the most Texan of all of us. And I think the root of that that comes through his life story is his generosity that he's an incredibly talented, hardworking person who's not afraid to give you the shirt off your back if you're, if you're, you know, if you're struggling and help. He's never, never, you know, it's not a handout, it's a hand up. Mm-hmm. And he's yeah. always got one for you. Yeah. I, got, I was really struck by reading about, they were talking about that he would always give away shows, like a, lot, a good chunk of his yearly show, of his shows that he did, he didn't charge for. If, if a veterans group or a military base or a school asked him to perform, he'd come and do a show for them and wouldn't, wouldn't take a dime. And, like, you know, that's where I saw Willie Nelson in 2005 was at a benefit show. I didn't even, it wasn't even planned. We were just down, my wife and I were dating, and we were down in the West End walking around, and we heard some music playing, didn't know what it was, so turn a corner. Free concert for Katrina victims, Willie Nelson. Walked right up 30 feet from the stage. Well, he's a bit like Batman that way. Yeah, exactly. No advertising, <laughs> no, n- nothing. We didn't know anything about it. Never. But, and I'm one not of, the country music star that you want, and but we, I'm the country music star you deserve. And one of the most amazing <laughs> concerts I've ever seen, because I knew every single song that he sang. Yeah. It, was, it was all the hits. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, you know, when I got to see him, uh, my wife and I, before we were married, she was still in school at A&M, and we went one night to see him play at the Texas Hall of Fame in Bryan. And, you know, it was just a good, casual dance hall atmosphere. And then he got there out there on stage, and he walked out there, you know, hooked up the guitar, put his finger up in the air, and then they started playing Whiskey River to open the show. And then he played for, like, two and a half hours straight. The only There were two breaks in the show. About a third of the way in, he put uh, Trigger down and picked up his blues guitar and played a good chunk of time on that. And then there was one more break when he put that down and pick trigger back up and finish the show. If you go and again, break out the old internet, fire up Wikipedia, go look at just the list of songs written by Willie Nelson. Then you look at the list of songs performed by Willie Nelson. You just realize like, my God, the man just is prolific in his um, ability just to generate a catalog of music, to write songs and not just write like, He's not. It's not just saying, "Well, well, gosh, what is a hit machine?" I mean, they're they're complicated. Like the yeah. Phases and Stages album is a lot of great songs on there, but when you look at it, you go, "Oh no, it's actually it's a concept album." And then you go, "Oh well, like he's, you know, well let's do you know let's do Country Man, let's do a reggae album." Right, and that's the thing is that even the songs he doesn't write, which a good chunk of his albums have been songs. And he didn't write. Uh, Stardust was his biggest selling album, and that was the Great American Songbook. But he made the songs his own, and he put his own stamp on on the songs. And and I think the the financial independence that the settlement gave him has enabled him to not have to make albums that have to sell. It's enabled him to make albums that he can stretch creatively. Well, I know someday soon we'll do an episode. We'll talk about people like Stevie Ray Vaughan and that kind of thing. 
I'll put Willie in this category of there's certain kinds of people of there's guitarists who can play a, a, a single note and you know that who that is. And Willie is that way as a guitarist, but he's also in that category as a vocalist. Yeah, like yeah, I don't yeah, I yeah. don't go who who is that? Hmm, who is that enchanting voice I'm hearing? You're like, "Hmm, no, you know exactly what's going on. You're not going to confuse him for anybody else." And it yeah. it he's he's a he's a unique diamond that shines in the Lone Star State. You could almost say that Willie Nelson is the Neil Diamond of country music. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Cracklin' Rosie, <laughs> but he—he think he is—he is the best of the. He is the best of us. He's sometimes the worst of us, but he is the best of us in, in what he does. Well, he's—he is—he is what it is to be Texan. He yeah. has tried, he has failed. He came home to Texas, licked his wounds, and he started over. And and you you made the comparison last week that the, all these legends of Texas. The biggest feature of, especially of the Sam Houston's, the Bowie's, the Crockett's, is the rising from failure and finding new life in Texas. And Willie has done that so many times. Texas is Texas is the ultimate place in second chances. It's not an easy place or third, to be or from, fourth or third or fourth. <laughs> it's not an easy place to live or be from, especially in the frontier days. And sometimes in the seventies, it was a little rough, apparently too. But it is. It, it represents the spirit of Texas. Represents rising above. You know, holding your head high through whatever. When it's bad, you hold your head high. When it's good, you enjoy it, but you are respectful. You know, if pride is a sin, it's not one that he suffers. No, no, no. And he's that's that sums him up right there. Can't say anything else. God bless Willie Nelson and God bless Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can also follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends, and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway.